the last several weeks digging into the life of Joseph. We went on a youth retreat, dug into the life of Joseph, and then spent the next two weeks on Wednesday night finishing up. So I'm really excited to dig into this chapter with you. But before we jump in, let's ask for God's help one more time. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it never changes. We thank you that it is living and fixed. We thank you for your grace. We ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Would you um, make much of Christ? Nobody here needs to hear from me. We all desperately need to hear from you. So would you speak from your word for your glory and our joy? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Genesis 37, I think God wants us to see great sin and greater salvation. Great sin and greater salvation. On the one hand, the deeper you dig into this chapter, the more messed up things get. Do you notice that as Larry read? Just worse and worse and worse. The brokenness, the pain, the sin gets worse and worse. But on the other hand, if you look at the end of the story, in Genesis 50, Joseph tells us we should see God working salvation in this chapter. Uh, in Genesis 50:20, one of the most quoted verses from this section of Scripture, Joseph is talking to his brothers about what they did to him by selling him in slavery. And he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So if we're going to read Genesis 37 the way Genesis 50 tells us to, we need to see God working his plan to save many, to keep many alive as they are today, as he says. It's chapters like these where they're just so dark and the sin is so real. It's always real, but you just feel it. It's dark that God's glory contrasts and shines all the brighter. God's glory shines like a lighthouse bringing salvation and restoring where there was hopelessness and brokenness. So as we see the depths of sin in this chapter, let it cause us to more clearly see our great Savior. So look with me again at verses 1 through 11. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves down to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. You can't read these first 11 verses without seeing deep brokenness in this family. You remember Genesis 3, sin comes into the world through Adam and Eve. And here, 34 chapters later, we sin fracturing this 
family. And as you read, you can almost feel the divide and hostility growing. Maybe the first sign of brokenness is in verse 2, where we see that Jacob has multiple wives. Going against God's design is never good. It will always cause problems. And for Jacob, the problem is he doesn't love his wives equally. We're told earlier in Genesis 29 that Jacob had a favorite wife. He loved his wife Rachel more than Leah, and that continued when he married other wives. Rachel was his favorite. And that favoritism didn't end with his wives, but it carried on to his children. Jacob's favorite wife gives birth to his favorite son. And Jacob isn't shy about letting everybody know who's the favorite. And he makes Joseph this special coat of many colors so that everyone can see This is the one that dad loves most. The Bible calls this sin partiality. Partiality. James 2.9 says, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Jacob should look at his kids and say, Even in my sin of having multiple wives, look how merciful God's been to me. I have all these kids. God has given me all these children. I don't deserve any of them, and I have multiple wives. I shouldn't have all these children. And yet God has been so merciful to me. But instead of enjoying all the children God has given him, Jacob only sees one good gift, and he could care less about the rest. And it's tearing his family apart. And Joseph's brothers don't deal well with their father's favoritism. Instead of talking to their dad about it, instead of dealing with the person who's sinning against them, and they're old enough to do this. Joseph is second youngest, so they're old enough to say, hey, dad, we need to talk. What's going on here? Instead of doing that, they take out their frustration on Joseph. It says in verse 4 that they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. They couldn't even have a peaceful conversation with their brother. And they're filled with jealousy. They can't stand seeing their dad fawn over Joseph. And then God gives Joseph these prophetic dreams where his brother's bundles of wheat bow down to his. And the sun, moon, and 11 stars bow down to him. And Joseph is excited. God is showing me things. Let me tell you about it. Now maybe 17-year-old Joseph should have been more perceptive and sensitive to the situation. Maybe he should have been like, you know, my brothers hate me. Maybe I won't tell them that they were bowing down to me and all these things. Might not go over well. But I don't think Joseph is trying to rub it in. He probably could have been more sensitive and aware, but I don't think he's rubbing it in. I don't think he's trying to poke at his brothers and make the situation worse. I think God has given him these dreams. And he's like, you were in the dream and I was in the dream and I need to tell you about what God is telling me through these dreams. So he tells his family the dreams, and they understand exactly what the dreams mean. Most of the time when dreams come up in the story of Joseph, the meaning of the dreams isn't clear, and God needs to give Joseph the interpretation so everyone can see. But not this time. This time everyone knows that the dreams mean that Joseph is going to be raised up, and they're all going to be his servants. I think God makes it so clear to everybody what this means, because later, after it's fulfilled, they can all look back and say, oh, that's what was happening. I don't know how these brothers who couldn't speak peacefully to Joseph had room to hate him more. It seemed like they had kind of maxed out on that already. But it says in verse 8 that they hated him even more after the dream. So you see the deep fractures in this family just growing larger. Now, there's plenty of blame to go around for the issues here. But I think the one who bears the most responsibility is Jacob for his repeated sins of partiality as their dad. 
And what's so odd about that is that of all people, he should have known better because he experienced favoritism tear his family apart as a young man. Of all the people, he should have known better. You remember, Jacob was a twin. His brother Esau was dad's favorite. Jacob was mom's favorite. And Jacob's mom masterminds this plan to get to deceive their dad and get Jacob to get Esau's blessing. So we're going to steal Esau's blessing. We're going to do all these things, which results in driving a wedge in this family. And Jacob has to flee for his life because Esau wants to kill him. But now Jacob's repeating the same cycle of sin. So before we go on in the story, two things to see here. First, sin in our lives is defeated one way, by putting it to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. Sin in our lives is defeated one way, by putting it to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. You would think that the one sin Jacob would be immune to is partiality. You would think that's, not, that's the one he would never do. It's the one that hurt him. It's the one that hurt his family. But he's not immune to it. No one becomes immune to a certain expression of sin because it was done to them and hurt them in the past. Nobody. That guarantees nothing. I would love to tell myself that I would never, ever, ever put somebody through the most painful, sinful things others have done to me. I just couldn't do that. Couldn't imagine that. But the Bible never teaches that an expression of sin can be overcome by first being a victim of that sin. There's you cannot overcome sin without God. There is no second path to saying, I'll be a victim of that sin and then I'll overcome that. Experience is not enough. Our most painful experiences of being sinned against don't make us immune to committing those very same sins against others. That's not the way sin is defeated. Our experiences aren't enough to overcome sin, but also we see here neither is age. Neither is age. Sin doesn't magically fade with age. If you look forward into Genesis 42, you will see Jacob goes deeper into his sin of partiality. It gets worse over time. It doesn't get better. In Genesis 42, Jacob is holding on to Benjamin and he's just become possessive. He's like, nothing can happen to Benjamin. I don't care about the rest of you, but not Benjamin. He's like Gollum with the ring. He's like, not this. He gets worse and worse over time. It's so easy to minimize sin by believing the lie that I'll just outgrow it. I'll just outgrow this. Put it on the back burner because just like little kids outgrow clothes, I'll outgrow this. Just give it time. You ever tell yourself, when I get older, I won't do that anymore. When I go to college, when I get married, when I turn a certain age, when life slows down, when I retire and have time next month, next year, then that habit will be gone. Then these sinful thoughts will go away. Then I'll no longer have that sinful desire. Hear me, that's a lie. No sin just ages out. We just get better at doing it and better at hiding it. The sin in our lives is defeated one way by putting it to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. We get that from Romans 8.13, which says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Sin has to be put to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. Think of it this way. Sin is not like a mild cold that your body fights off without you having to think about it. When you have a cold, you don't think about and say to yourself, okay, I'm going to make thousands of white blood cells and antibodies to fight this thing off. Now, like, go, like sit in a chair and got it. It's not how it works. By God's grace, our bodies do that. You can be unconscious and your body will 
do that. No, sin is more like a bone spur. Bone spurs don't just go away over time. If left unattended, they get worse and worse and worse. The only way to get rid of them is to have someone go in and actually shave them down. That's what sin is like. Sin must be cut off. It must be put to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. So don't make peace with sin. Don't make peace with sin. Ask God to help you make war on your sin. And as you do that, take courage. Jesus has already won the war for us. If you are in Christ, your fight with sin is a winning battle. If you're in Christ, you are fighting a winning battle. You are fighting forgiven sins, defeated sins. There is no sin in you, no evil craving, no wicked habit that is stronger than the Holy Spirit. So put it to death. Second, we should see here that God shows amazing grace to broken families. God shows amazing grace to broken families. All of our families are broken because they're made up of a bunch of sinners. My family's broken because I'm in it. But God, it is true. But God is so good. My wife isn't here, but she would say it. She's watching. She's saying amen right now. But in that, God is so good and so faithful to redeem and restore broken families. Think about Joseph's family and how the story ends. God is going to take the sinful jealousy and anger the brothers have for him, and he's going to turn that around and use that to save them. That's what's going to save them from a famine. They're going to get rid of Joseph, and God's going to use that. He's going to redeem that and use that to save them. God's going to redeem this situation. And then broken as this family is, God is going to send the Savior of the world through their offspring. If your family looks like a shattered mess, hope in God. Hope in God. What others mean for evil, God means for good. What is broken, God can restore. What has caused pain, God can redeem. And we see it here. And it continues to get worse. Look at verses 12 through 24. It says, Now his brothers went to pasture their flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him to the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they're pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we, then we will say a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. We'll stop God's plan. But Re when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of the robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And when they took him, they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So in verses 1 through 11, you feel the tension building. And here now it just blows up. Jacob sends Joseph to check on his brothers and he willingly goes. But when the brothers see him off in the distance, their anger and their jealousy just boil over. And they plot to kill their brother. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about sinful anger? He says in Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said 
to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus was not exaggerating when he talked about sinful anger and murder together. He's not exaggerating. And I say sinful anger because there is a righteous anger. That's just not what Jesus is talking about here. And it's not what the brothers had. This is sinful, unrepentant anger. And when their sinful, unrepentant anger is mixed with opportunity to express itself, they're ready to kill their brother. Sinful anger, here's the opportunity, let's kill him. Sinful anger is looking for an opportunity. If I could not get caught, what would it do? But Reuben tries to secretly save Joseph. He convinces his brothers not to kill him, but instead throw him in a pit, thinking, I'll be able to save Joseph later. Now, it's good that Reuben wants to save Joseph, but he's being a coward about it. He doesn't want to stick out his own neck. He wants to play both sides so he can say, yeah, let's throw him in a pit. Let's kill him, and then Joseph, I'll rescue you later. He's the oldest. He should step up and save his brother, but he won't. And so when Joseph comes, his brothers take his robe and throw him in a pit. Now, it's easy to read this with no sympathy for these brothers. It's easy to read this and think, I mean, I know you guys have been mistreated for sure, but kill your brother? Like, that's extreme. You're going to kill him? He's your family. He's your flesh. But like, at least some type of mercy. Are you really going to kill him? What's wrong with you guys? How could you do that to your brother? But just imagine being in their shoes. Not saying what they did was right. Not excusing it in any way. But imagine being in their shoes. What would it be like if your dad made it clear that he loves your sibling more than you? Can you imagine your dad having multiple wives at the same time and one day you come home and find your mom sobbing and say, what's wrong, mom? And with tears running down her face, she says, your dad doesn't love me. He loves his other wife. He doesn't care about me. How angry would you be for your mom? And day after day, you watch your dad laughing and playing with your little brother in ways he never laughed and played with you. You feel like an outcast and wonder, what's so wrong with me that dad doesn't love me? And then your dad makes his favorite son a coat that he would never make for you. There's just a lot of pain built up over years and years and years. And these brothers are sinned against in horrible ways. How do you deal with that? What are you going to do with that? Where's that pain going to go? It's got to go somewhere. Maybe you feel that kind of pain. Maybe you've experienced the painful effects of repeated sins done to you and the buildup over years and years. If that's you, hear me for a second. Revenge will never heal the deep wounds of sin you have from others. It never will. Revenge will never heal the deep wounds of sin you have from others. It's not wrong that these brothers are hurt. And there is an appropriate righteous anger they should have over the sin that's been done to them. But they listen to the lie of revenge. Revenge whispers a dangerous lie to us. And I know you've all heard it. We've all been tempted with revenge. Revenge says to you and me, hey, that deep pain you feel from that person, I can make that go away. I can give you the closure that you need. They deserve what they have coming and you need to get rid of this hurt. I can make this feel better. I can give them justice. Revenge makes a promise it can't keep. Sin can never heal the wounds of sin. 
when you're wronged and when you're sinned against, actually, first, if, if, you're, if you are, if revenge is taken against you, have mercy and look at that person and say, this is a person who's hurting and trying to get rid of that hurt and have mercy on them. But also when you're wronged and sinned against and, and it hurts, there is one place you can go with your hurt. You need to run to God. You need to run to God. Bring your pain to God. Don't let your emotions rule you. Go to God. Leave revenge to him. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Don't buy into the lie that we see played out and have seen played out where somebody tweets something disrespectful and horrible against somebody else and the response is, well, you need to, Tweet something terrible against them now and get revenge because it would be weak to leave revenge to the Lord. Let God get revenge. Not only will God repay, but we see in the life of Joseph that God alone can heal the wounds of sin. Joseph is sinned against in horrible ways here by his brothers, but God heals Joseph and helps him forgive. It says in Genesis 41:51, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name Manasseh means to forget. Joseph's son, he names him Manasseh. But it's not like the kind of forgetting where you can't remember where your phone is. Joseph didn't forget what his brothers did. He didn't lose the memory of it. We know that because in chapter 42, Joseph sees his brothers 20 years later after they sold him into slavery, and three times he breaks down weeping. He has to leave. It's not like he forgot. He names Manasseh forget in chapter 41, and then the next chapter, he's just seeing his brothers and he's weeping. The pain is still there. He still knows what happened. No, the kind of forgetting that this is, is more like what God says in Hebrews 8.12 when he says, I will remember their sins no more. It's not that God forgets. He knows everything. But he forgives and he doesn't hold our sins against us. That's what happens to Joseph. God enables him to forgive his brothers and not take revenge on them when he had the opportunity. So go to God for healing. Only he can give you peace. Only he can help you forgive and only he can give you perfect justice. That's what these brothers should have done. They should have run to God. But instead, they try to heal the wounds of sin with more sin. So back to the passage. Verse 25 says, Then they sat down to eat. So you see how hard their hearts have become. Their brother's in a pit, crying out for help, and they're eating lunch. And we know the brothers are hearing Joseph, because later in chapter 42, it says, the brothers say, in truth, we're guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. They hear Joseph. They know what's going on. They hear his cries for help, but their hearts are hard. And it says, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming to Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Then they took Joseph to Egypt. So Judah sees this as an opportunity. This is not mercy. This is, hey, why not make something off our brother? 
Like, if he's going to die, at least let's get something out of this deal. So let's sell him. And they sell him for 20 pieces of silver. And then it says, When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped it, the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. We talked about idolatry in the, um, in the, I uh, can't remember what it's called. We talked about it in the New City Catechism that we read. This is idolatry. This is what it looks like. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So they cover everything up. They go back to their dad with Joseph's blood-dipped coat. And Jacob, who deceived his father when he is young, is now deceived by his sons. Jacob deceived his father. When Isaac was blind, he dresses up as Esau, puts on his clothes, puts hair on his arms, and goes in, Dad, see, it's me, it's Esau. Can't you identify me? Now his brothers, now his sons come to him and say, Isn't this your son's coat? Isn't this identify? He must have died. So his sin finds him out. And their trick works. They, he thinks Joseph is dead, and the chapter ends there. So just down, down, down. But as we end, I want us to see two more things from this chapter. First, through all the sin, pain, and suffering, God is accomplishing his sovereign plan. Through all the sin, pain, and suffering, God is accomplishing his sovereign plan. God promised Abraham in Genesis 12:3 that through his family, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And we see God working out that plan. Partially, we see that fulfilled in Joseph. Because when the famine hits, it says all the nations come to him for food. So partially, this is going to be fulfilled in Joseph by him going to Egypt. Ultimately, it's going to be fulfilled in Christ. But God is working his plan through all this sin, pain, and suffering. Later, when, Jesus, when Joseph is second command in Egypt, he gives us the exposition of these events in Genesis 37. And he says it's all about God fulfilling his plans. Look at Genesis 45 with me and see what Joseph sees when he looks back at these events. He says in Genesis 45, 4 through 8, So Joseph said to his brother, come, brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And this is an amazing statement. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. You sent me here, but ultimately it was God who sent me here. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph sees God all over the most painful experiences of his life. We see it even in the small detail in verses 15 through 18 where Joseph can't find his brothers. And then he's looking for them. He's told they're going to be here. No, they're in And he just so happens to come across this unnamed guy that just so happens to have heard from his brothers where they're going and points him in the right direction you want why is that detail in there 
Why does Moses just, just say he went there? But he's showing us God is fulfilling his plans. God is going to get Joseph to his brothers. Even if he can't find them, God's going to get Joseph there. And he will use this not named stranger to do it. Because God is going to bring Joseph to Egypt. And God is going to raise Joseph up in power. And he's going to save his family from the famine to come. God is accomplishing his plans. Is God accomplishing his plans across the earth now? Yes. Yes. Praise God. Yes, he is. Even in the pain we see, especially thinking of Ukraine, God is accomplishing his plans. The catechism my dad taught us growing up said, what are the decrees of God? Answer, his plans for history, and they always happen. They always happen. We should lament the sin we see in our country, rejecting God, the painful effects of sin we see across the globe. But don't be shaken. We have a firm foundation. Our God rules and reigns and nothing will thwart his plans. His plans are not being thwarted. They're being accomplished even now. Last, see the many ways that Joseph points us to Christ. We want to see the many ways that Joseph points us to Christ. There are so many. Here are just a few. Just like Jacob sent his beloved son on a mission, so also God the Father would send his beloved son in whom he is well pleased on a mission. Don't forget that Jesus was sent. Jesus did not just come. He was sent from the Father. Don't forget that. Don't fall into the all too common error of thinking God the Father is the angry member of the Trinity and Jesus is the kind, compassionate one who steps in and says, Father, don't hurt them. I'll fix this. That's not what happened. In love, God sent his Son for God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his only son. God in love, the father in love, sends his son. Just like Joseph is sent. And Joseph, and just like Joseph went willingly, so also Jesus in perfect obedience to the father came willingly. But there is a difference. When Joseph was sent, he had no idea what was awaiting him. If Jacob knew what was going to happen, or if Joseph knew what was going to happen, never would have gone. But God sent his only son, and Jesus came willingly, knowing everything, on mission to die for sinners like you and me. Just like Joseph says, here I am in the chapter. So also Isaiah, when who will go for me, God says in Isaiah 6, who will go for me? Isaiah says, here I am. And Jesus says, here I am, Father, send me to save sinners. Joseph saves the very people who rejected him. And this theme is repeated throughout the Bible. God uses Moses to save people that would reject him over and over again, and yet God still uses him. David, as we've been going through 1 Samuel, remember, was sent to check on his brothers, and his brothers reject him, and yet God uses David to save them from Goliath anyway. And how many prophets were rejected by the very people they were sent to rescue? And the fulfillment of all that is Jesus Jesus was rejected by the very people he offered salvation to. John 1.11 says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And we have rejected Christ in our sin. All of us in our sin have rebelled and rejected Christ. But in spite of that, Jesus died to save sinners like us anyway. Aren't you glad that we have a God that doesn't let our rejection get the last word? Aren't you glad? He doesn't look at his children and say, well, you've rejected me, so I won't save you. He 
instead saves rebels and sinners like us. God saves us not because of us, but in spite of us and all our rejection. What a God we serve. Joseph was stripped of his colorful robe, and the same wording is used when Jesus' robe is stripped from him. In Matthew 27, 31, it says, And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Joseph was sold into slavery for 20 shekels of silver. Jesus was sold by one of his closest friends for 30 pieces of silver. Joseph's robe was sprinkled with the blood of a goat and was presented to his father. But Jesus is our scapegoat, and his blood is presented to God the Father as a sin offering for sinners like us. In Leviticus 16, 8 through 10, it talks about the scapegoat. It's no accident that they killed a goat. Jesus is our scapegoat. The brothers try to cover up their sin with the blood of a goat, but it doesn't work. Their sin still remains. The blood of bulls and goats cannot cover up sin. But Jesus' blood can. And it is presented to the Father, and he always lives to intercede for us. Jesus' blood truly covers our sin. Our Heavenly Father sent his beloved Son on a mission in the power of the Spirit to save sinners like us. Jesus is our true and better Joseph. May God give us all the grace to see through great sin to our great Savior. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that we can look through Joseph and see Christ. Thank you that you have shown us that in your word. We ask that you would use your word to make us more and more into the image of Christ. Help us to trust you. Help us to make war on our sin. Help us to go to you for healing. Help us to refuse all forms of taking sin into our own hands. Help us not to try to heal the wounds of sin with sin. And help us to trust your good sovereign plan for your glory and our joy. Amen. Would you stand and sing now, Be Still My Soul. Be still my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to your God to order and provide. In every change, He Through.
can take a seat. Usually we would now just in, uh, close with a scripture and invite you to stay, but in light of everything that is going on in Ukraine, we'd like to end with a quick time of prayer. So I would encourage any who would like to pray to just stay where you're seated. Pray loudly for what is going on in Ukraine and pray that God would cause wars to cease. Pray for peace there. And then after a few have prayed, I will close us. If you're live streaming, pray at home. You won't be able to hear, but I would encourage you to pray at home. So if a few would pray out loudly so everyone can hear, and then I'll close us in prayer.